Coming up on this week's show, a new Mike Tyson punch-out game. Resident Evil 1 is brought into 2020. And we talk Atari Lynx, 3DO and Amiga with RJ Michael. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 224, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to this week's show. Now, before we get into it, we just want to say a huge thank you for all the amazing comments and support we got about last week's podcast and the interview with Dominic Diamond about Games Master. I think that went down pretty well, it's fair to say. Oh, it was fantastic. We had a huge reaction. And, you know, the best thing about it was I found out about some new podcasts and there's an absolutely amazing one called Under Consultation. And I, I love the name. It's like the consultations. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's a Games Master retrospective podcast. So what they do is every week they look at a different episode and they'll kind of go through the episode, talk about the guests that were on there, interview some people as well. And they were really supportive of us having Dominic Diamond on. Anybody else just been binge watching Games Master on YouTube since we did that? I, 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 have not. I haven't actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm on series five at the moment, so yeah, I'm getting it's through. Amazing. Uh, but yeah, it was a really, really good episode. Then I think we actually uh, knocked Radio Four off the uh, top of the leisure chart on Apple Podcast, didn't we? Well, it's our, our main rival is Gardener's Question Time in yeah. the uh, leisure category, <laughs> and I, I have to say we did have some gardening content, so that might yeah. have helped. We, <laughs> yeah, were, we were we were eleventh last time I checked. I don't know where we are now, but <laughs> uh, we're taking the Gardener's Podcast down. That's that's our, that's our aim now. <laughs> Get to that so, top ten. <laughs> so uh, thank you for all the amazing messages that we got. Now we've got an amazing show coming up again this week now we're going to talk about um a couple of systems that because normally we get a guest on and you know it's amazing if they've been behind one of our favorite systems this week we're going to hit three now we're going to be talking to rj michael now of course he was behind the amiga he was one of the original launch team who created the first amiga computer and you know ravi and i are obviously huge fans of the amiga uh joe you're a big fan of the atari lynx yeah, I love the Atari Lynx. I think it's just like the unsung hero. Like, it just doesn't get enough love. Well, RJ was also behind the Atari Lynx after the Amiga, and he went to work on the 3DO afterwards as well. Now, obviously, we did an episode with Trip Hawkins um, a couple of months ago. It wasn't, wasn't too long ago, talking about the 3DO. And really, that was a system that had a lot of potential, but really just due to market circumstances and the pricing, didn't quite reach its full potential. But there's no denying that, you know, technology-wise, for when that was launched in, like, what, 1993? like all of RJ's systems that he's worked on it was really ahead of the game yeah he's a really interesting character because I think every project he's worked on has been really like you said advanced in technology and it's often been the kind of same team you know RJ working with Dave Needle and Dave Morse as well yeah and uh, it's really really interesting because he's also been involved with like Amiga Intuition um, operating level kind of stuff and creating games so you know there's a a full mix here of kind of computer expertise and and design expertise as well well i didn't realize that he was actually behind the amiga in the 3do as well so i knew he did the links and uh like like dan says i love the links you know really ahead of its time you know that that beautiful backlit screen and stuff like that so this is real like an educational piece for me as well because i i didn't have a clue that he was behind all three of these and we've actually tried to interview RJ a few times. I think the first time we did it was Ravi and I were in Amsterdam and we were with RJ and it was before we started the podcast, wasn't it? Just before. And we sat, sat down and did like, Ravi did the most amazing like hour long interview with RJ. Then we got back and uh, realised he didn't turn the microphone on. 
Oh, yeah. And <laughs> it, it, that was so frustrating because, like, RJ's personality is amazing. He's he's one of these kind of Californian, really cool guys. Well, he's not California, but he lives there. He, 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 he kind of has the attitude of the place. It's fantastic. And he's got that old tech pioneer vibe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's been involved in so many incredible projects over the years. He works for Google today, actually, in, in, in their gaming division. So it's going to be a really interesting episode. RJ Michael is our special guest. He'll be coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. Now, let's get straight into the news stories this week. It's been a really interesting week. Now, Joe, I know you're really on a Resident Evil tip again at the moment. It's one of your favourite franchises ever anyway. I, I, I'm going to go ahead and say it. Resident Evil is probably my favourite franchise of all time. Like, I cannot get enough of it at the moment. Um, now, and, like, literally just spend all night just on youtube just looking at like what's coming out what's going on even with the retro stuff and this is a story i absolutely love so a modder called mr curious has modded the resident evil 4 game engine and put resident evil 1 into it and he's released it and it's called resident evil remix so it's not out to play at the moment but it's getting a lot of buzz and a lot of people it's you know it looks beautiful it looks just like resident evil 4 Uh, and he's used a lot of assets from resident evil 4 but he's like recurated some of the enemies he's recreated like the whole mansion and then he's got all these sprites uh you know from the original not the original but from the resident evil one remake the 2002 one and then put them into resident evil 4 game engine and it just looks amazing like it would be an absolute dream come true if this came out for people to play you know even just as a fan thing I think as well, because when I go back and play those originals, you know, I've been on a bit of a, a PlayStation 1 nostalgia vibe recently, so yeah. I've been kind of playing a lot of old games. Those tank controls, though, I, I really struggle with them now. Yeah, they're still, it's because it's the Resident Evil 4 game engine, it does actually still use the tank controls. People are like, oh yeah, Resident Evil 4, it was the first one from behind and stuff, but if you actually think about it, it is actually still the tank controls. You can't move when you shoot, yeah. you have to stop and, you know, kind of like turn and stuff like that. It's not quite as bad as the original 3, but... Yeah, you're probably going to have to get past that if people still aren't used to that. (laughs) But it's still in third person, right? Because the original Resident Evil was those weird fixed camera angles. Yeah. And I can never work out where it was in the room (laughs) or which direction to go in. Yeah, so Resident Evil 4 from behind. So this is in the Resident Evil 4 game engine, so it's still from behind. And I think it looks really awesome. It's got a real retro kind of look to it still. You know, a real kind of like PlayStation 2 look to it. But I think it looks really cool. But yeah, it's definitely from over the shoulder from behind and it, it like i say it does have those kind of tank controls but they do they do work but they're not nowhere near as smooth as like resident evil 2 remake or 3 remake i really want to get my hands on this you know i think a lot of those early 3d games suffered with that kind of you know the, the camera angles just kind of getting lost and you, you couldn't see what was going on i remember like alone in the dark being like that as well and the early tomb raider games often the action would be going on you'd be like the camera would be behind a rock or something you're like what's happening around there <laughs> there's a tiger mauling you and you're just yeah. doing backflips against the rock <laughs> no, I, you know as much as i love retro games i'm pleased that we don't have to deal with stuff like that anymore i must say so uh bring it on resident evil remake in the resident evil 4 engine if you want to find out more about that i'll link it up in our show notes at the retrohour.com while we're talking about playstation classics getting brought back for the 21st century tony hawk's pro skater bundle yeah so we had ralph damato on the podcast that was telling us all about tony hawk's pro skater getting redone the redux for number one and two and there's more information coming out on these reduxes and they look absolutely amazing like the comparison of the graphics and the lighting are fantastic and uh, they've got lots of features uh, including like creator skater and uh, creator park as well all the original levels are there all the original skaters have returned 
the original the, soundtrack as well. Original yeah. soundtrack, Rage Against the Machine, uh, Goldfinger, yeah, yeah all of that <laughs> stuff. And they've also really improved it. Um, and they've made a collector's edition, which is pretty cool because what you get in a collector's edition is you get a custom Tony Hawk 2 skateboard deck, which wow. is amazing. <laughs> and you also get a demo disc, which, if you remember, a lot of us played that warehouse demo originally. Yeah. That was our first exposure to Tony Hawk. So when you when you sent me that over this morning, I was like just overwhelmed from nostalgia of like I swear that Tony Hawk demo was on so many demo discs. Yeah, and it was on the uh, PlayStation demo discs. If you remember those, we used to yeah. go around friends' house and just who can get as many points in the demo as possible. <laughs> I think That's that amazing. demo you could play it like you know there was enough in that demo not to even want the full game. You'd be like, oh, this will do. You could, you could have yeah, because you, you got the first four level with two characters. Yeah. In you could play it two-player. <laughs> Perfect. So they've learned the lesson. You've got to pay for the demo disc now if you want it, yeah? Yeah, and there's been, like, previous remakes. Like, um, I think you were telling me earlier, Joe, about uh, Pro Skater HD. Well. Yeah, Pro Skater HD came out in 2012 on Xbox Live Arcade. And, like, when everybody was like, oh, yeah, it's getting remade, it's getting remade, I was like, wait, wait, wait. I'm sure this got done before, which wasn't very successful because it was, like, kind of like a like a mash together of the number one and two, like a few of the best bits, if you will. But like it had like, it was missing loads of assets from it and stuff like that. And like, I don't think it had a free skate mode on it and stuff. It was only like a £10 release on Xbox Live, but it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't met with great reviews. But I'm, I'm really excited about this one. And I think this is what we need after, you know, what was the last Tony Hawk's? Was it Tony Hawk's Pro Skater I, 5? I think it was, was it? Skate Jam or Pro Skater 5, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I remember the series changing a lot as well when it went yeah. into like, underground and american wasteland yeah well. yeah i think i think this revival is like really what the series needs yeah i enjoyed those titles but not as much as uh pro skater and pro skater 2 yeah they're, they're definitely the best ones number three is pretty good as well but yeah this i'm, I'm excited about this one and it's nice that they're giving it like the full you know triple a full release yeah. not just like a you know like you said a 10 pound kind of xbox arcade thing that doesn't get you know a lot of work put into it but yeah it's like the it, real deal this is the real deal. It's a full-on, you know, in the vein of like Spyro and Crash Bandicoot. It's a full-on remaster. It's not just a HD upgrade or anything like that, you know. And they could have done that. They could have just slapped, you know, slapped that together and gone, there you go, 20 quid, Xbox Live. But no, like you say, AAA here. Now, this is well, my one question, right? Have have they basically made the guys younger on it? Because if they've done motion capture or they've captured them, they're, they're, they're all old guys now. So maybe they need to reduce them a few years. I think, uh, I think that they've done it as uh, the ages they were when the original uh, yeah. came out, which I think is a good move. Yeah. <laughs> the joys of video games. Yeah. <laughs> Tony so, obviously, AP. <laughs> so obviously Resident Evil and Tony Hawk's coming back. That's great news. One that I didn't expect, though, a new Mike Tyson punch-out game might be on the way. I broke my back. <laughs> <laughs> Where's this yeah. come from, then? Uh, well, basically, um, they put out the original Mike Tyson's punch-out, and that was like 33 years ago. And... Um, they ended up, Nintendo ended up losing the license um, to use yeah. Mike Tyson on it. So if you remember, uh, Punch-Out 2 didn't actually have Mike Tyson on it. Yeah. He yeah. Was, it was Mr. Dream, wasn't it? Or yeah, Mr. Like Dream, yeah, in, in, yeah. In, the, in the further games. So recently, he's been in an interview and uh, he's kind of expressed interest in launching a new Punch-Out game. He said, uh, we're going to start our own Mike Tyson Punch-Out game 
and Mike Tyson ranch computer game and bring them both back to life. <laughs> <laughs> but it's oh unclear who uh, we were. But as we know, that game was an absolute classic, wasn't it? Yeah, no, 100%. It's crazy that he's like, like, I know obviously it's a little bit off topic, but he's like making this huge comeback because he wants to get into boxing again as well mm. for, you know, for uh, charity fights and stuff. But wouldn't that be amazing if we got like a, a Mike Ty- a brand new AAA Mike Tyson's punch out on the Switch or something? You know, I'd love a VR version of that. How much fun would that be? Yeah, that would probably actually be the best, the best route to get, take, I would imagine. And the scariest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll keep an eye on that and uh, we'll keep you up to that as we hear more about it. And uh, finally, before we get into our chat with RJ Michael, a bit of Atari ST news. Now, it's nice when we see new games for the Atari ST and the Falcon as well. And this kind of looks a bit like something like Marble Madness, but on steroids. It's a new game called Randomizer. Yeah. So do you know uh, Bitmap Soft? Um the guys who recently were doing uh, Millie Molly, we were talking to Carton yeah. Handley about. Um, they've released quite a few titles in the past and they've uh, done really nice releases. So these are boxed with discs and uh, support for new systems. Well, this one's called Randomizer and it looks actually like a completely crazy kind of Packland version of Marble Madness. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds insane. Yeah, so it's, and it's, it's a puzzle uh, coming out for the STE and the Atari Falcon as well. Is it getting like a, you know, the big box releases? Is it getting like a full on or is it just going to be like a download? Oh, no, full download full, full big box uh, with oh, wow. a poster, a manual, stickers and a floppy disk. That sounds amazing. And looking at it, I mean, I'll put the um, the video they put on YouTube in our show notes. There's like a little trailer that's like a minute long they've put up. And it actually looks loads of fun. Essentially, it's, um, it is a puzzle game in the vein of Marble Madness. You've got to get your marbles to the target. But there's obstacles and goodies and stuff you've got to collect along the way. And uh, it actually looks quite complicated. You've got to be quite quick. And there's kind of a little um, user interface down the bottom where it seems you can kind of drag obstacles in the way of other marbles and things as well. So it does look like it could be one of those kind of adrenaline fueled games i think like you know you're going to be on the edge of your seat playing it yeah screaming at the tv and it hasn't got that high requirements as well it's just one megabyte of ram um so that would be fine on your uh, st the falcon would be a massively overkill for this but it's good, <laughs> good to see software coming out for the falcon definitely i was gonna say we've got like a few our friend adam recently got a falcon didn't he i know a few people have got them they're like all right great little machine i've got it set up now what there's that nothing yeah. to play on it, so it is good when new games come along. So if you want to find out more about that and everything else we talked about, I'll link it all up in our show notes in your podcast client or at theretrohour.com. Speaking of our website as well, if you want to show a little bit of support to this podcast, you may know that we have a Patreon. And actually this weekend, on Sunday, patrons hang out time again. How much fun was that last time? I absolutely loved it last time. I absolutely love seeing other people's game rooms and seeing what they had in their collection. So I want to see more of that, guys. So we're going to be doing it Sunday night at 8pm. I'll put all the details in our Patreon if you uh, want to join us on there. There is still time if you want to register as well. I mean, essentially all we're asking is, you know, you, you can put in whatever you like. It could be the cost of a cup of coffee once a month or a bit more if you can. We understand that times are hard for everybody right now. But the reason that we're doing a Patreon is essentially to ensure the future of this show. Now, obviously at the moment, um, Joe and Ravi, you're recording the show at home. I'm in the studio here, um, holding the fort, putting everything together at the moment. But... 
this is not our studio, we don't own it. So what we want is essentially to get a proper retro hour studio built when we everything gets back to normal, we can get out and about again, to enable us not only to keep the quality of the show as high as we'd like it to be, but also giving us that flexibility to come in and do more content for you guys, to get guests from all around the world at any hour of the day, to do video content as well. I mean, it's going to make it all a lot more easier if we've got our own little studio space. It's not going to be too expensive, but you know, all your help really, really will make a difference. So if you want to make a little donation into the running of the show and make sure that the Retro Hour is still here in years to come, all you've got to do is back us on Patreon. And for doing that, I mean, there are different tiers. There are various rewards and stuff we've got on there. You can check it all out. But everybody that does it, eventually, we're working through as many as we can, will get a shout on a future episode of the show in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like this week, thank you so much to Chris Pode. He was actually one of the reviewers on Bad Influence back in the day. And he did a review of Ed Donkey on country on the SNES so oh, if you watch awesome. it on YouTube you'll see Chris good spot that's amazing <laughs> <laughs> thanks to Kevin Lear we also have Richard Wodehouse thank you to Carl Parks and Mr. Jan who all made donations into our Patreon if you'd like to do the same and back us on there you'll find all the information on our website at theretrohour.com right we'll have more news for you on next Friday's show and right now time to chat Atari Lynx, 3DO, and of course Amiga, with this week's special guest, the legendary RJ Michael, next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for the main event, then the bit that we've been looking forward to, where we're joined by this week's special guest. Now we've got so much to cram in to the next hour or so. Talking about not just one, but three of our all-time favourite systems. The Atari Lynx, I love that machine. The 3DO, what potential that had. And, of course, the Amiga. This week's special guest is the legendary RJ Michael. Welcome to the show, RJ. Hello, good to see you, oh, virtually. <laughs> yes, well, I know you're living lockdown life like all of us at the moment. Oh, indeed. I, I'm, I'm blessed, though, that I'm, I'm hanging around with my wife and my uh, one of my children. And uh, we got three dogs here. And so there's lots of lots of joy and entertainment on top of everything else that's going on these days. Well, we really appreciate you taking a bit of time out to reminisce with us today. Now, of course, like I mentioned, we've got a, a lot to fit into this interview. You've worked on so many incredible projects over the years. But I thought it might be quite nice just to kind of go right back to the beginning. I was reading that you created your first electronic game when you were just 14 years old. Uh- <laughs> it's true. It, it's a funny thing. I had um, uh, learned about engineering from both uh, the. I, I had a, uh, parents that helped me, gave me interesting toys to play with when I was young, electronic toys and, and kits that I could build things from. And um, but I also I, I came from a family that had a lot of carpenters and people that working with their hands, and and I, I kind of inherited both of these things there was also there's a lot of crafts crafts people that we've had in our family over the years people that were good at sculpting and woodworking and painting and stuff and and somehow I got a little sprinkling of all of these things I love working with my hands and I love working with wood and 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 electronics and engineering all sort of came together when I was 14 years old and I built this tic-tac-toe playing computer that was this giant marvel of bad engineering it was made out of uh, actual electromagnetic relays that were uh, driven by a, a, a big bag, bank of d batteries 
uh, it, it, you know, the entire system, the logic of a tic-tac-toe game I represented in these electromagnets that were all doing, you know, yes or no switching for me. And, and I designed in electromagnetic energy the uh, a tic-tac-toe playing computer that was, you know, not defeatable. And the entire thing was hooked up to a bank of light bulbs that were in, you know, little flashlight light bulbs that I had wired all together and 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 soldered the whole thing together and, and it was laid out on this giant piece of plywood where all the pieces I had screwed them all down to the plywood and and it was this amazing thing. I, I can't remember exactly how many. I'm gonna guess 50, 60 of these, uh, you know, actual literal electromagnetic relays that I was using to be like little transistors. And uh, because they were all wired together, when the circuit was powered on, the uh, electromagnets would assume a state of either on or off. And, and when it would switch to on or off, it would make a little clicking sound. But there was like 50 or 60 of them on this board. And when you'd click one of the switches to make your move, when you'd, you know, indicate the move that you're making to the computer, the state of the computer would change by having the signals ripple through the electromagnetic relays and have them flip over to another state, except there's like 50 of them. And, and at any time, half of them might go off. But it wasn't just all at once. It was this wave that swept over the board of them. It would make this wonderful sound. As it would sweep across the devices. And, oh, my God, it was wonderful. And it was undefeatable. It, it uh, wouldn't necessarily win as uh, it goes with tic-tac-toe, but... You couldn't beat it. You, it never lost. It never lost. Well, you must have got your inspiration from somewhere. And um, I was kind of thinking, what was your first computer then? Or what was the first time you actually kind of saw a machine operating and uh, producing a graphic or a display? I, I guess they, they both were probably, I, I, I don't remember computer. I, I do remember the first game system. But computer is kind of a more vague thing because it's, you know, what was that? I, I mean, I've, I've seen uh, oscilloscopes and, and old-timey computer displays uh, back a long time. But see, I even go back earlier than that when before there were computer displays and where it was all punch cards and uh, and printouts and there was no computer display involved in it at all. I don't know, but I remember when I was very young, uh, I encountered Pong at the Museum of Science and Industry where I grew up. I, I, I can't place exactly how old I would have been, 10, 12, something. I don't know. I'd have to you know, go back and actually look at a calendar to try to figure that out. But it was the, uh, I, I don't even know whose Pong it was. It was just at the museum. They had it set up in one of those labs that wasn't one of the permanent display, but it was a lab that you could walk in and they had cool stuff going on that you could look at. And one of the things that they had in there was a Pong game that was hooked up to a oscilloscope and there were two rheostats uh, they're like you know circular dimmers big circular dimmers that big ones that had big knobs on them and the two players each would grab onto one of these big rheostats and you'd twist the knob left or right and uh, and your paddle would go up or down on that oscilloscope display and a little tiny tennis ball would beep boop back and forth between there was no beep and boop there was no sound effect it was just 
just an oscilloscope in these two rheostats. But man, I fell in love with computer games back then. And when I touched that thing for the first time, I didn't really know it, but you could kind of imagine knowing all along that that was it. You know, this is what I, I'm going to do for a living. But it kind of was, I guess. I got in, into that mind space even back then when I was young. And it just kind of, I've always been there. Well, I know you went to the University of Illinois and you did a, a dual degree there. I mean, what, what was your time at university like? So, you know, wow, this is something I don't, I'm not sure I've ever talked about this before. Right. But when, when I was in, when I was younger, I, I, I always loved engineering and I loved everything about engineering. I, I recently unearthed one of the old vacuum tubes in, in my boxes of things in my garage. I found a, an old vacuum t- tube that I've held on to all these days. Vacuum tubes is the, the technology that came long before transistors. It's what, what all engineering technology used to be made out of these amazing vacuum tubes. And, and you know, my, my, own, uh, my own understanding of engineering goes back to stuff like that. But I also remember when I was young, I was a teenager, they had a, this is back in the days of broadcast television. There was no cable yet. It was all broadcast. And they had a special broadcast channel that had pornography on it. (laughs) (laughs) But it was scrambled. It was encrypted. And... I uh, bought a kit. I found that you could buy a kit that would take that signal and descramble it. And so I went and I bought the kit and it didn't work, but it got pretty close. And so I went and learned enough about electrical engineering from, you know, studying and playing with kits and stuff like that to figure out how to modify this thing to get it to work better. And in the end, I got it to work pretty well. And, And at that time, I thought, man, engineering would be a great job to have. Look what you get to do. (laughs) But engineering was always something I didn't want to do. And I don't know why. I don't know where they came from. My father was an engineer. Maybe he tried to grind it out of me. I don't know. But it was always like something that was not something I would do. That's, that would be something that someone else would do that would, had different skills than what I have. And that, you know, I was going to do lofty, big things, get an English major degree and go and tra- change the world with my words or whatever. I, I don't know. I, you know, it was the arrogance of you that, mm-hmm. that I, I, I was really wanting to get an English degree and, and um, for, for unspecified but important reasons to me. And I almost got an English degree. I got right down to the end of it. I was down to the last, uh, you know, two, three months. And I was, it was a great dilemma in my life. I'm, I'm about to graduate from college with an English degree. And I had no real idea what I was going to do with an English degree, because, you know, what I really wanted to do was write books, but you don't, pop out of college and start writing books. I mean, you do. I Now I recognize that you do just do stuff like that. You do yeah. just go write books if that's what you want to do. But at the time, I was scared. I was afraid. I didn't know what, what life meant. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And, and I had this amazing afternoon. I'm sitting one day in the, one afternoon in the computer lab at, at the university. 
I, I went to the U of I, University of Illinois, and everyone there, every student, just by virtue of being a student, you could get a uh, an account on the computer at school. And, and so yeah. many people had accounts just to play around with it, like I did. I just wanted to experiment with it. I taught myself Fortran. I taught myself Basic. I was, you know, goofing around just kind of because it was a computer and computers were cool. And we had on that computer, this is the old, I'm talking old timey days. There was no... Uh, no computer displays. You you would sit at a terminal and punch your program into punch cards, and then you'd hand the deck of punch cards to the operator, and they would run your deck of punch cards through the computer. It would generate an output, and they would hand you back your uh, deck of cards with the output that was generated by your deck of cards. And 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 uh, uh, and and when you uh, would sit at the terminal. You could then interact with a teletype device, and this is what the old, you know, the printer teletype noisy things. Yeah, it was just amazing. They were wonderful, and and on that teletype device, I used to play the Star Trek game while I was working on my my programs, and the um the Star Trek game was cool, but it was not great. I didn't like it, and so I had written my own Star Trek game, and I had. This fateful day, one afternoon, I'm sitting in the computer lab, sitting there playing my Star Trek game and alternating between playing my game and staring off into space, worrying, fretting, what am I going to do with my life? My God, I'm about to graduate with an English degree and I don't know what I'm, what am I going to do with my life? And I'd worry, Ma, what am I going to do? And I take a break from that to play my computer game. And then I go back to worrying, what am I going to do with my life? And then I play my computer game for a couple of minutes. And I went back and forth <laughs> like this, like an idiot, until finally it occurred to me, ah, I wonder, maybe I could do something like this for a living. Maybe that would be fun. And, uh, and I changed my life. I changed my entire career that afternoon and went and uh, uh, joined the computer science department and, and changed everything. So did you end up going straight from university to Williams then? And how did you get a job there? Uh, so uh, when I first got out of school, I, uh, I had a job at this awesome company on the south side of Chicago, the Siaki Brothers, it was called. Uh, it's uh, S-C-I-A-K-Y, Siaki Brothers, on the south side of Chicago. And, and um, I was the first bona fide computer scientist they ever had at the company. And they like just let me run the computer science effort at, at the company. It was the, not, not all of it, the, the user interface and the tools and stuff like that. My, my boss was still responsible for the real-time programming stuff, which I got to do a lot of and, and got to learn that whole side of the company. But they also, they never had anyone there who knew string handling. They never had anyone in there who could write an accounting tool and stuff like that. And so I just went nuts and they went nuts with me. And I had a great time. It's a lot of fun. I worked there for a year and a half, but the the whole time I, my soul is aching. This thing that had awoken in me uh, that that afternoon, trying to figure out what to do with my life, was was still pulling at me. And and one of the, you know, to find out who I really was and and what I really wanted in life, and and you know what it really all meant. And um, 
and I decided one of the things that I had always promised myself is that I would spend a bunch of time in Europe. And, and so I, I decided I, I would, um, I worked at that job for 18 months and then left and went and traveled, uh, you know, to, to Europe. It started out just a trip to Europe, but it ended up a year long trip where I went around the world. I literally went around the world during that time. I had, it was great. When I worked for uh, Siaki Brothers, I, it was a great job. They paid me very well. And uh, at the same time, I was living at home with my mom. I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have a car. I didn't have anything to do with that money. So I just, you know, month after month, just shoveled it into a bank account. And then after 18 months, I took it all out and bought some a real nice tent and a couple of airplane tickets and uh, a Eurail pass. I bought a Eurail pass so I could travel anywhere I wanted in Europe. And I was a young man with my entire life in a backpack on my back. And I spent at first a bunch of months traveling around Europe, doing lazy circles around Europe. But in the end, uh, it's a long story, but I went home for my sister's wedding and then uh, uh, went to Japan and then went to Russia and then went back to Europe. And oh my God, and I spent a year <laughs> doing that. A whole year, almost a whole year. It was 11 and a half months. And uh, when um, I got back, uh, that's when I decided that I needed to do something more meaningful with my life. I needed to do something that brought together all these different skills, all the different people that I was, the artist, the musician, the engineer, the, the poet. And, and so, uh, you know, I was looking around for what was going to be the most satisfying thing I could do in video games. It, it, it just thanks to my friend, Ken, lovely conversation I had with him one evening. It, it, video games. Yes. I, I went to explore that. I went to the arcade, spent a, you know, a couple evenings in different arcades around Chicago. And it was clear that, that Williams made the best product. Williams was a Chicago-based company. And they were, the, they were the ones that were really leading edge. They had, you know, with Joust and, and Robotron and Stargate and Defender, you know, it's, my God, the company was just amazing. And uh, so I, I uh, went in to uh, get a job. At Williams, I said, oh, okay, I'll just go over there and they'll give me a job and it's going to be great. And I'm going to get into the games industry and it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, so I went over to Williams and said, give me a job. And they laughed at me and told me to go away because I had, you know, they didn't have jobs and I had no qualifications. And so uh, uh, it, it was miserable. I tried and tried and tried. I tried over several months to get myself a job there, but every attempt failed. And uh, I finally, they finally got tired of talking with me and the recruiters wouldn't talk with me. And I was uh, at, uh, desperate to find a way in, and I managed to get my hands on the phone list, the phone list for the company, and was able to use that to contact uh, a fellow on the inside whose name is Noah Falstein, who uh, was the great, great player in the games industry to this day and a good friend of mine to this day and gets the credit uh, for being the person who gave me my break in the game industry. He, he decided that I was so persistent and I had asked so nicely that he'd give me a chance. And so he talked them into, uh, into hiring me and, and letting me join Williams and, uh, and the rest is history. <laughs> I think that's true of a lot of things in life, isn't it? it just it, sheer persistence can pay off sometimes. Yes, indeed. And this is one of them. 
This is one of those stories where don't give up, keep trying, keep trying. Well, you worked with Noah on um, Sinister when you got there. And that was, I mean, I, I remember that game has been a very early example of in-game speech. That's kind of what it's famous for. What was it like working on that project? Ugh, Sinister was so superb. This is my 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 intro to working in the game industry was working on Sinistar and and they were uh, brilliant, had an awesome team together, and w- with a magnificent product. And I was a new kid, you know. It's green at programming, had you know promised potential, whatever. But but no one knew who I was. But the uh, Sinistar was racing to get out, and they had. Uh, a good plan for getting the core done, but uh, the window dressing, they, they didn't have a lot of time for window dressing and they wanted to know if I would, you know, work on special effects and add some of the more cool stuff and, and improve the stuff that was in there. And, and so stuff like speech, I, I got to help with to get that both uh, working and with the, you know, the, the process of capturing the digital audio and, and converting it and everything like that. I was able to help write a lot of tools and, and help out with that effort. Uh, plus um uh, intoxicated evenings with the microphone, making uh, speech samples that may or may not may not have gotten into the game. Not sure exactly what the truth is about <laughs> which which of those pieces of audio are actually my voice. I don't know. We were all pretty intoxicated at the time. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but uh, so uh, and special effects. Uh, the thing I did, I had the most fun with, was working on the um, special effects for the games, the explosions and stuff like that. You know, and and uh, and and got to actually help. You know, I was not just the green kid that uh, was in the way, but uh, I got to actually contribute to it. And and we had a great time together. And then you know, I, I got to work on other projects that Williams finally. Um, Star Rider being the the pinnacle of all of that before uh, I got asked to join Amiga. But uh, Sinistar remains the one that's nearest and dearest to my heart. God, I love that game. So hard to play. It's so hard to play. You mentioned Star Rider there as well, and that was a Laserdisc game. Can you kind of tell us more about this project? It was a small era in the game industry when we tried to do Laserdisc games and uh, there was a number of different, very clever attempts that were made to find a way to incorporate uh, the abilities of Laserdisc players into uh, a real-time application. And, and this, uh, one big thread was to create um, movies or uh, video clips that you could jump around between based on what was happening in the story, the action of the story. And, and you could come to a decision point in the story and play one of N different videos to show what had happened based on the decision that was made. And there was a, a big attempt that went with that. And there was a lot of success with that. We at Williams tried a different thing. We tried to create a 3D roadway that you could drive on that had um uh that that had the quality of a laser disc imagery to to show you to show you the landscape that you were driving through that it wasn't the crude uh graphics that you could make with 
uh, video games at the time, relatively crude compared with television. We wanted a game that looked more like television, like you were playing uh, uh, an actual television show where you were driving a car that was real time inside the television show. That was that was our vision that it would be as good as that. We had a, a our idea was that we would take a camera and drive it through a, a 3D generated uh, roadway and that we'd record individual frames for each small step of the camera through this roadway. And then we'd be able to play it back for you, the player, and either play it at regular speed so it looked like a full-speed car going through the roadway, or slow it down and slow the frames down and show you fewer frames per second to give the effect of driving more slowly. And and we could make you crawl or come to a complete stop by our rate of how many times we're updating the frames. And by having the entire roadway uh, roadway pre-rendered on the Laserdisc, we were able to show you frames that looked as good as a high, high quality uh, generated video display. And it was a cool idea, except, you know, we, we were thinking the roadway would be fixed and you, your car would drive left and right. But it, it, when we tried it, it looked fake. It looked kind of like, you know, a cheapy old video game that just had a movie and, and you had a typical low res pixelated car in the foreground and it just didn't feel right. And, and so we, we had the idea instead, and, and we got a patent for this. It was a cool idea. We rendered a frame that was twice as wide as a television screen. But we took that frame and shrunk, a, or shrunk it up in half. So if you looked at the originals, everything was only half as wide as real. Or you might think twice as tall, but for, for the width. But it was everything was squished up side by side. And we bring that video into the computer and then blow it out times two. We would just double every pixel and give you what was, in effect, a correctly rendered display where each pixel was doubled horizontally, but where you could then scroll completely left or right, one whole screen to the left and one whole screen to the right or anywhere in between and get the effect that you're actually turning on this roadway that was coming at you in this high resolution mode. And it was just, it was amazing. It had never been done before. It's never been done since. The, the thing we ended up creating was a blend of, of regular pixel art that was overlaid on top of this gorgeous movie that would play. And it was a really cool game. But my, my favorite part about it, I got to be the, um, I, I had risen at this point at, uh, Williams to be project boss for the Star Rider project. And I got to work with these just brilliant people where we would sit around the table and say something crazy like, well, we could, you know, have, we, we could bring the video in and all you got to do is build a video display piece of hardware that will double the pixels and render them out to the display double pixel wide. And, and we'll give you a start part in the frame. And all, all you got to do is just do this magic. And the hardware guys would say, okay, and then go off and, you know, three weeks later, come back with the <laughs> thing that would do that. And it was, God, it was amazing. It was my first taste at that, where you could dream up something that big, that magnificent, and and someone really wonderful around you would say, "Sure, I can do that," and and go make it happen like that. God, it was it was an amazing experience for me. It was, it, it opened my eyes for what was 
going to come for with the rest of my career. That my, was my first real taste at, at how glorious all of that could be. Well, speaking of incredible teams and magic and limitless possibilities, how did you get involved with Amiga Corporation then? So it was right after William. Well, it was at Williams. Uh, there's a, a genius level engineer out there, Sam Dicker, who uh, was one of the Sinistar team and then uh, got invited to go out to California and join this company called Amiga Corporation that was uh, doing uh, joysticks and, and uh, entertainment, you know, interface devices and stuff. And But of course, Amiga was not developing peripherals. It was developing an actual computer, but they were keeping it on the down low. And um, Sam, after a short while, uh, called me and asked me if I wanted to go out to California and, and talk to this company as well. I, I respected Sam a lot. Sam's a, like I said, genius level and, and great person as well. Wonderful human being who asked me if I wanted to come out and he was, you know, cagey about it, but he let me know that there was more to it than just joysticks and that I really ought to come out and talk with these guys. But you know, I, I had, I had a, a great gig at Williams. I was having a lot of fun. I, I was I had landed really well in my life. Uh, on, I had moved up to the north side of Chicago. I was living with two really wonderful artists, musician, theater people. Great, great. Everything about my life was great. And meanwhile, they were asking me to consider going out to California and living out there in scary, crazy land where, you know, everything's, everything's different and weird and, and scary and, and, and a startup where there's no guarantee, where you have no idea what's, what's going to happen with your life. And I'm secure and I'm here with my family and friends and out there it's the great unknown. And they really wanted me to come out and at least talk with them. And I said, yeah, 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 sure. I'll come out and talk with you. And then I blew them off. The days before I was supposed to fly out there to interview with them, I, I made up some reason because I just didn't want to. And so I blew them off. I blew <laughs> wow. off Amiga and said, made up some excuse. I can't remember what it was. And then the second time I, I did it more intentionally, they, we were going to go out. And I had, after talking with a bunch of my friends about it and, and about life in general, and because things are, you know, California is really, as my mom said, you got to be careful of California. She said, never forget, it's the land of fruits and nuts, she said. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was, that was what it was like. That was the atmosphere where I was raised in Chicago. And that's how people thought about the kind of crazy stuff that would go on in California. And, and so it was finally not until the third attempt to get me to go out there and interview that I finally broke down and said, all right, you know, if nothing else, it's a trip to California. All I got to do is listen. I don't have to make any commitments. So I'm going to go out and listen. And, and I, I went out and, and before the end of the first day, I was already madly in love with everything. And, and uh, the second day of interviews was even better and, and they loved me and I loved them. And it was, it was, it was decided right then and there. And, and, I, and I would have started the very next week, except I wanted to um, take my time 
transitioning from Chicago to living in California. And so I, they, they packed up my stuff and moved everything across country for me, except my car and my camping gear. I, I, I drove slowly across the country. I gave myself two weeks. I stopped at the Rocky Mountain National Park. I stopped at the Grand Canyon. You know, I just took a long, lovely two-week drive across country from Chicago to California and got there and started my new life. And I stayed at the Rocky Mountain National Park for uh, three, four nights. And it was at, during one of those nights that it's now late at night and I've got my own little campfire going, but I'm not ready for sleep yet. And I'm sitting around a campfire and I'm smoking a cigarette. I've been smoking cigarettes for a number of years at this point in my life. I'm thinking that I'm about to move to California and California is a very healthy place. You know, I, I, I recognized when I was interviewing there that no one smoked cigarettes that, that I saw or that I knew of. There was no smoking in the place. And I'm sitting around this campfire thinking, I'm going to go to California. It's, it is such a healthy place and I'm going to be the only cigarette smoker. And I've got this vision of myself out there standing behind, you know, next to the dumpster out back, slowly <laughs> lonely smoking a cigarette and I had you know wanted to quit so many times in my life before and I, 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 sitting around that campfire thought this is it I should do it I should quit and and you know and and go to California and not be a smoker anymore and, and really do it and I said to myself you know I'm going to do it as soon as I'm done with this pack I'm gonna quit and I'm gonna be done with it and then I remembered how many times in the past I had said that to myself. As soon as I'm done with this pack, I'm going to be done with it. I must have quit smoking a dozen times before this. And so I said, nope, I'm done now. And I flicked my cigarette into the fire and I took the pack out of my pocket and gave it a light crush and threw it into the fire. And that was it. And then you quit never again? Almost. I smoked one more time. It was during, during Amiga Computer. And uh, I had just, I had a big success. I was working on uh, intuition. I just I accepted the task of getting intuition done. And uh, I had gotten a rectangle that was the prototype window, the first window. I had gotten the rectangle up correctly. And it was a great moment in life. I needed to celebrate. I ran out of my office and, and there was no one else there. There's only a security guard in the front and I'm running through the building trying to find someone who I, I could celebrate this and everyone was gone and there was nothing to do. There was the, the vending machine had candy bars and I thought maybe I could celebrate with a candy bar. There was a nearby tavern. I could go get a beer, but I knew if I got a beer, I wouldn't really want to work anymore. And I had other stuff I still wanted to do. And I didn't know what to do. And I'm walking through the lobby of the building and the security guard is smoking a cigarette. It's a menthol, menthol cigarette. And so I said, I'll do that. It's been six months or whatever it is, five months, six months. I'm going to celebrate. I'm, I'm going to let myself have one cigarette because I missed it so much. And, and this is a cause for celebration. I'm going to do it. So I asked the guy if I could mooch a smoke off of him. And he said, yes. And I took it back to my office and I lit it up and I smoked maybe two or three puffs of it. And 
suddenly, abruptly turned violently ill, down on my knees with my garbage can. And after a wretched 15 minutes, I finally calmed down enough that I could drag my coat off of the chair down to the ground with me. And I fell asleep for about two hours on the floor of my office with my coat as a pillow until I, I woke up and just feeling foul and vile and grungy, just dirty and wrong and putrid, dragged myself to my car and went home and slept it off. And that was my last cigarette. And it's pissed me off all of these years, too, because, the, you know, if, if my first cigarette had had that effect on me, I wouldn't have smoked for all of those yeah. years. But <laughs> it, was a, it was a definite period at the end of that sentence. Well, when you joined Amiga, like, how far along was the system? And I know the Amiga crew were trying to keep the projects kind of secret. Were there many leaks? And, you know, did you have stuff locked off in separate rooms? So uh, when, I, when I interviewed there, they had nothing more than a whiteboard with an illustration on it showing the block diagram of, of what the game system was going to be. When I got there, they, you know, under I, I signed a non-disclosure agreement. They revealed to me that it was actually a, a computer game company, and that uh, I was going to be part of that. You know, effort. I was being invited to be part of that effort. You know, there was people. The hardware people had started laying out what the hardware, what it would actually have to be, but there was no breadboarding or any prototyping at that point at all. And the software people had that the two that were there had a vague idea of what direction it was going to go in, and especially the the two main components that that we were focusing on right at first being the um, uh, and a uh, kernel. Uh, and from the beginning, we were talking about it being a multitasking kernel, but the kernel and then the, the graphics component that would interact with the, the kernel. And, and, you know, in the beginning, it, we, it, we didn't have a, any firm idea about all the, so much that is the glory of the Amiga, the de- device driver architecture, the, the, you know, the, the ability to have vectored runtime libraries and, and uh, you know, stuff that is commonplace now, even something as basic as the multitasking the the amiga stood apart for this and and did for years as a only personal computer that had real honest to god multitasking at yeah. at its core and all of that was the the multitasking quality of it was known from the beginning but all the rest of it just grew out over time the uh, the uh, one of the great glories of Intuition is that it works on a piece called the input layer. And the input layer is this stream of input events that, that flow through the computer. And, and anyone can, can take something out of that stream. They can put something into the stream. They can listen to the stream but not disturb it as it's going by. You know, it's this real flexible thing that we invented and that made everything, everything about the system work just magnificently well together. And it was, it was in inventive creative stuff like that, that, 
uh, came out over time. We didn't know in the beginning, but it, you know, if you then looking back in the fullness of time, not only the ideas, but if you look at the engineers that we put together to to do the OS, it, it makes sense that it came out the way it did. It's likewise with the hardware. So much of the operating system, so much of the hardware, both are reflectant of the people themselves that worked on it. it. They weren't just ideas, but it was philosophy and experience as well and, and how it all it became a thing. For example, uh, one of my favorite stories of Amiga Days is Dale Luck, software guy, but vastly familiar with uh, graphics topics because of his schooling and his earlier work before he got to Amiga. He had the genius to recognize that we could tweak the hardware to do line drawing for us without, uh, you know, without a, a, a real big deal. And uh, because we were, it was already the blitter and, and we had stuff and I mean, the pieces were all there, but it, it took that genius of being able to look at what we had and, um, and make it more based on his experience, based on, on his qualities as a human being. The, all of that, the, the fact that the device driver works so well, the, the fact that libraries work as, as cleanly as they do and, and, and that apps can survive changes to the operating system, major changes to the operating system and still work without needing you to you know, redo the app. And stuff. It was just an amazing thing that came together that could only have come together because of those people that did it. And it was, you know, the, the machine itself. I mean, that synergy you mentioned there between hardware and software. And, you know, it really was a remarkable piece of engineering. You mentioned as well about intuition that you, you developed. I mean, GUIs then were new. I mean, no personal computers I remember back then had a GUI. It was all text-based. I mean, were, were you kind of making the rules up as you went along? And how did you decide kind of how it would work then? Did you have any, like, kind of template for it? Uh, not a template. So I personally had had some exposure to uh, user interfaces. I, I had seen some of the stuff that was going on at Stanford, and I had seen some of the user interface stuff that uh, Apple was working on. And we got scared about that because we needed a user interface and we were afraid of that anyone that had been exposed to something, uh, other work that had been being done might expose the company to legal liability. And so as soon as we decided that I was going to do the user interface, we locked me off from the rest of the world in terms of being exposed to any, any of that stuff. I, I started working, you know, just on, on a simple computer. I, I, I didn't, you know, use the user interface parts of, their computers and invented my own answer to wanting to do a user interface. The, 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 the building blocks, windows and menus and, and stuff like that. None of that. Well, there was a couple of things that I invented that, that we ended up getting patents for, but you know, windows and menus was, was um, the, you didn't get it on personal computers yet, but uh, the uh, major players were doing lots of experimenting in, in that space. And, and, and so I wanted to do that sort of thing 
but it was essential that I had no idea, especially from an engineering level, what other people had done to create those kinds of things, menus and windows and stuff like that. So instead, I, I got to start from the, uh, the Amiga documentation, you know, and, and whereas up until then I had been pretty low level and working on graphic stuff, now I had to step up and become a device driver person and, you know, and uh, figure out what we're going to do for this, the input layer. We had a thing called an input layer, but because of the, the demands of the user interface, we really had to grow the thing and, and uh, expand our thinking about people adding and subtracting and um, all the fancy stuff that it ended up doing. And it, that came out of the magic of a bunch of different people working on it. But a large part of it was me sitting in this walled off ivory tower where I was working on the user interface, asking for things. Carl tells this funny story about that, uh, that, you know, I had gone away in my office for whatever, some extended period of time, days, weeks went by. And then all of a sudden I surface and walk over to his office and say, Carl, tell me how device drivers work. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, because it, it was like that. So and and I think uh, the user interface, this thing, uh, intuition, it was as great as it was because of the foundation that it was developed on. You know, we, we knew we needed it to be a uh, honest piece of system software. But there was all these magnificent building blocks to work on that uh, about the only thing we didn't have at the time that I wish we had was a semaphore. The, it was the only real building block that I'm, I've grown accustomed to using in, in a, my computer science career that the Amiga didn't have. Over that and, and real memory protection. We didn't have real memory protection, which is, was horrible. But um, everything that the intuition was, that uh, the magnificence of it was came was due to the fact that I, I was as as the saying goes I was literally standing on the shoulders of giants that that the the I had the Amiga to work with I had device drivers and multitasking OS and, and an amazing graphics library with an underlying layers library that I could create windows and menus and drop down menus and all of that stuff trivially because the underlying stuff was so good. You know, I didn't even have to worry about um, creating a, a text rendering because someone else was already working on text rendering for the Amiga. I didn't have to worry about what it was going to be like to have the user interface make beeps and boops because it, it was there. I didn't have to figure out what, what was I going to do for a pointer and have the pointer float around on the display without interfering with the display because we had a pointer in hardware. We had a device in hardware that I could use that was a pointer that floated on top of everything else. And so any other computer system on the planet, if they, wanted, if they want to let a pointer float around freely on the display, the amount of underlying headache and grief that you have to go through to make sure that things appear and disappear correctly and get cookie cut in and all of that. We didn't have to do any of that stuff. It just worked naturally for us because we had hardware sprites. God, it was amazing. <laughs> I mean, speaking of the power of the system as well, you actually worked on one of the, the best early Amiga games, Defender of the Crown. 
I mean, and, and that along with the Boing Ball demo as well. I mean, what's the kind of uh, an aim to show off the power of this hardware? Uh, I, I don't know if you know, Defender and Crown was not one of my favorite Amiga experiences. Right. <laughs> and, um, but uh, um, uh, it, it, it started out a, a noble undertaking, and, and that was exactly it. The, the, the point was to to demonstrate just how far you could go with a, a game and, and uh, you know, the kind of not, not your traditional, uh, not your traditional game, but something like that, which was more based up about storytelling and, and, and evocative, evocative of an entire, an entire mood more than just a game. And, and, and it pulled it off. It had a, it did have that magic, but um it's like that Boing Ball demo. It you know it's that demo now has been duplicated endlessly, and and even at the time, although it took took a year, but even at the time, you started seeing people doing their own Boing Balls on on other computer devices, and and uh, you know it was, it was fun to watch it spread around, fun to watch other people try to create the magic of it, but the the the, the part that that is is so ironic is that if you ever looked at the source code for the Boing Ball demo, it's trivial. There's there's almost nothing to it because all of the magic of the Boing Ball, that most of the magic is is either just the playing around with bit planes and color palette manipulation to to give the effect of that Boing, Boing Ball rotating and moving around on the screen, plus you have a little bit of audio. Uh, playing a sample and you know that's it and that's it and and other people they they had to push their machines to their absolute limit to create something that looked like the bong demo sorta not exactly as good as but for us it was a trivial undertaking just being clever about using the the tools that we had available to us atari nearly bought amiga famously but uh commodore managed to do it in the last minute what was that time like, and what was Jack Tramiel like to deal with? <sighs> Those were hard times. Through no fault of our own, the entire marketplace for the Amiga computer vanished over the uh, half a year, three quarters of a year, leading up to us being almost done with the machine and almost ready to go into production we had been working on a game system. The Amiga was a game system. It's going to be a low-cost game system with just bare minimum capabilities, not too much RAM, and, and uh, you know, sold in a bundle with a game or two and some joysticks and stuff like that. It was going to be a game system, nothing like the machine we know today. It was going to be lower-powered, uh, much less memory and, and stuff like that. And because that's what that's what Amiga was. That's what I had been hired to uh, move out to California and do. That's what we were all doing was developing the Amiga game console. And then I, I think it's because so many uh, developers tried to jump into the game industry band onto the bandwagon and they, uh, they, they caused it to capsize. They caused it to fall over that with junk. With they all what they were writing was junk, 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 and so many consumers got so fed up with with you buy a piece of software and you spent you know whatever your 
$2.99 on it. And it turns out to be just yet another piece of junk. And, and there was nothing, you know, there was no review systems back then. This is all pre-internet, of course. And I think people just got tired of it and people just got weary of games and, and the whole marketplace disappeared. There was a whole bunch of machines, you know, and televisions and ColecoVision and the 2600 and all of that. That all died. It all died. And it died right under the feet of the Amiga. And we thought we were doomed that, uh, um, you know, because uh, you know, how could we ever sell? Why would we even try to bring out a device in a market where there was no market left anymore? And but fortunately for us, it's a part of the story I left out before. That is, it's so, so amusing to me. I went to interview at Amiga and they had the famous block diagram for the Amiga laid out on a whiteboard for people to see. And as I'm, uh, I first I met with the bosses and I met with the VPs of, of you know, the marketing and sales and stuff, stuff like that. Uh, but um, uh, I also sat and talked with Jay Miner, the VP of engineering, of hardware engineering. And, and he had the block diagram and, and the block diagram had features uh, point itemized on it like an external uh, uh, hard disk or external storage anyway and uh, and a keyboard it had a, a the this block diagram had a box marked out for a keyboard and and I asked at the time a keyboard you know as a a game system need a keyboard really and 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 uh, and you know it was kind of it, 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 it it became this, I, I, I developed this understanding that what was really going on was that uh, the, the, the people that knew how much stuff was going to cost and, and how much we could sell it for wanted us to keep it as low cost and cheap as possible. But the people who were actually developing the system wished it was really going to be a real computer, not just a little toy game system. They, they wanted to imbue it with the ability to do more, to go beyond that. And so they were thinking from the beginning, you know, extended RAM and, and extra external storage and keyboards. There was no mouse in the beginning. Mouse came later. But uh, there was a key, KBD, it said, on <laughs> a little block diagram of that whiteboard. I don't know where the whiteboard is now. We got to find that baby. That's one of the most important pieces of Amiga history. And it's because all along the engineers themselves wanted it to be a real computer. Um, it, it, it was after Commodore got us that we changed our focus and went from, uh, from a game into turning it into a proper computer. But um, uh, which so tied up into what was going on with Tramiel. He had been at Commodore. I'm, I'm, this is part of the story I don't care that much about, and so I, I don't know all the details of it, but he had been at Commodore uh, and, and uh, had a big falling out with the management at, at Commodore, and so he originally went to Atari and intended at Atari to buy the Amiga to use it as a device that would destroy the, um, uh, the Commodore 64 and, and uh, go after the Commodore market. And it was not, he was not, you know, buying the Amiga because he wanted the Amiga to be the champion that it, it finally became, but he just wanted it as a weapon, you know, as a, as a tool. And his intention was not to keep Amiga together was just to buy the hardware and get rid of the staff and, um, uh, you know, own or have Atari own own the device and, and 
whatever was going to happen with it. But it, it was it was not good. It was it was the, the whole negotiations were in bad faith, and and they they were being uh, very tough businessmen, very hard people to work with. And I, I personally never had to work with any of the Tremils directly. I, I only know about their reputation and and. Uh, you know, although uh, because we sat across the table from each other a lot, he knew me well enough to know I was one of the Amiga people, but I never had to actually work with him on any of this. That was all people like Dave Morris that did all the negotiating. But uh, they just negotiated in bad faith, and, and but it was the only game in town for the longest time. And, and even though I believe they had tried Commodore at some point in the past but did not get a nibble, I, I don't know. We tried a lot of people at the time to talk with people. We talked with Apple and other people, but um, Atari was the only game in town. And, and, and the, the closer we got to the deadline, the more they realized they had us over the barrel. And, and so the harder negotiators they became and it got uglier and uglier and less, less happy. And things were grim around the office because it started to become apparent that we were going to have to sell out to the bad guys and that we were all going to lose our jobs and that our baby that we had worked so hard on was going to be, go, go into the possession by those people. But, uh, but then uh, miraculously, I, I don't know how Commodore heard about it. I never found that out, but all of a sudden the name Commodore popped up around the office and people are, uh, we're getting presentations together and getting ready to, to show to them. And, and it happened overnight. It had to happen overnight because we were out of time. We had an agreement going with Atari that, that uh, uh, you know, was about to expire. And then when the agreement expired, they were going to get the Amiga. And the Atari, the Commodore thing happened at the last minute. God, it was, it was amazing to watch. And we were all, several of us, sitting in the office waiting for phone calls to come in, you know, anxiously staring, waiting to see what's going to happen next. And, and they pulled it off. They pulled it off. What a day that was. Well, you also left Commodore and then joined Epics with Dave Needle and Dave Morse, and this led to the Atari Lynx. Uh, what was the story with that? So, uh, I, yeah, I, I stayed at Commodore until the uh, we got the first Amiga out, and uh, the first release of the Amiga and the operating system and everything like that, and then started working on the second one. But I, I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to do more than just the operating system. I wanted to help with the games and other people that were developing stuff out there. So I, I, I left Commodore and instead became an independent contractor. But Commodore immediately turned around and hired me right back, and I worked my first six months for Commodore over in Germany. And, was it, it was fun. It was fun being involved, and and uh, but I went off and and became an independent contractor, and I worked at a bunch of Amiga stuff over the next several years. But the whole time, uh, Needle and Morse and I had, had stayed together and and as friends, and you know, with our families getting together and all the time and stuff like that. And Dave Morse was great. His his wife is a wonderful, wonderful person. Love to hang around with her every chance I get, and. Um, <clears throat> One day, uh, Morris asked us if we wanted to have lunch because he said his, uh, his son had had an idea that was intriguing and he wanted to talk with us about it. His son had uh, been playing, I guess it was the Game Boy, and mm -hmm. uh, had, had made some offhanded comment about too bad it's not in color. 
<clears throat> and and so Morris has, had lunch with us and said, you know, well, why not? Why why don't? Uh, what would it take to do a game system in color? And uh, and we started brainstorming the idea. The three of us, and it was your classical sitting around a uh, at a restaurant at lunchtime. Uh, and nothing else to draw on, so we grabbed one of the restaurant napkins and and laid out the block diagram for for what a machine like Handy might be like, and and had the idea right away and right away for you know encryption and and how to handle the cartridge and yada 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 and the display and we're gonna have to do backlighting and and you know we sketched the whole thing out there at that lunch and then uh, we were going to go off and do our own company to do it. But uh, Morse at the time was on the board of the the game company Epics. Epics was more than a game company; they're trying to become a hardware company at the time, and and he was on the board. and And the whole thing kind of dovetailed, where where he had the idea that instead of doing our own startup, we could do uh, a sort of a wholly owned subsidiary within Epics, and still be relatively independent and have our own, you know, our own quote unquote stock and our own income and, and bottom line and stuff like that. And yet do it as part of Epic. So we wouldn't have to hire accountants and lawyers and all of that junk, you know, that it would, we, we would be able to leverage off of it. And it, it seemed to work. Okay. It seemed to be a good idea. So um, uh, we, we, instead of creating a separate company, which now I, I don't know, I don't know if that was the right thing to do. Probably not. Probably would have been better if we had just gone and raised our own money. Because finally, there, there was some stupid at Epics that uh, finally ruined the, the device that we had been working on because they wasted all of their money on, on this other thing that turned out to be stupid. And, uh, and there was no money left for us. They, they, waste, they squandered millions and millions of dollars on this stupid idea. <laughs> and I will even tell you this stupid idea... You you might have played with them. You might have experienced them in in your lifetime. Uh, they had once upon a time a board game that you would play with a VHS tape that you would play in your VHS recorder and watch the VHS tape on your television. And then after you watched the VHS tape on your television, then you would play this board game. Uh, you know, a mystery game or whatever, based on the information you had gotten from watching the videotape. So like you're watching a mur- you're playing a murder mystery game and and the videotape would show you something about some of the characters. And, and I, I'm, I'm not doing a good job of making it sound interesting because it's not very interesting. <laughs> I've seen these before. Yeah, I've seen I've played them. <laughs> and they they squandered millions millions of dollars and and finally there wasn't enough left to um uh they it just didn't work and because it didn't work they didn't have money left to properly bring the uh the handy to uh production and and get it out there they didn't have the money for marketing and all this stuff like that so they started looking around for a suitor to buy the the device from them and uh and you know we helped like crazy to find someone we we got real close with sega we thought sega was gonna buy it but instead sega brought out their their own game gear which was very suspiciously almost identical to (laughs) the handy we had showed them uh, six months earlier uh and uh so finally uh, epics found that uh, that the that atari wanted to buy it and that the tremils wanted to 
by our the, the handy from Epics and and Needle and I having been through that with them. Morse was more forgiving. Needle and I were not. We said nope. We we won't be part. Of, we will not be a part of that. If 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 you're going to sell it to them, then uh, you know we're out of here. And they said no. You don't have to worry. Oh no, you don't have to worry. We got great lawyers. We're great. Got the best businessmen, and we're going to be able to, you know, do a deal that'll be good for everyone. And we're all like nope. You're not. They're, they're, you're going to lose, and they're going to win, and they're going to destroy your company, and your company's going to go out of business, and uh, and they're going to get the product, and you'll have nothing. Trust us. We've seen it over and over again. This is what they're going to do. Mm. And Epic's, oh, you don't have to worry. You know, our lawyers smoke the fattest cigars. We're gonna, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we will dominate. And uh, and uh, and and so uh, Needle and I kept true to our word. And when they announced that they were going to sell it to Atari, Needle and I both quit. And because we wouldn't have anything to do with it. And so we completely washed our hands of it. The only thing we know for sure is that like whatever it was, six months later, Epics went out of business because Atari screwed them and did the wrong thing and drove them out of business. And those poor guys, those, all those poor people. After Handy was done, we walked. As uh, we were walking away from Epics, which was at the very end of 1989, uh, we all said that uh, uh, Morse had some agreement that lasted through the end of the year, something like that. Needle and I were done. And so we said on January 1st, let's get together. And on January 1st, we got together this time with proper drawing pads and pens and stuff like that. But we said, okay, let's do an entertainment device. What, what is next, genera- next generation entertainment device look like? And, and, and I think it wasn't actually January 1st, it was January 2nd, but we sat down then and, uh, and, and said, okay, let's do it again and designed up the 3DO and, 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 uh, you know, and I did the software, Needle did the hardware, Morse ran the business. It was the triumvirate that was always meant to be. And, and, and we jammed on that for, for the next bunch of years together. It was great. So we, it was just the three of us. We had our, our own little contracting company called New Technologies Group. And uh, we spent half our time doing contract work and the other half of our time developing the 3DO. And we had a, uh, it was a codenamed Opera at the time. And, uh, oh, it was codenamed Opera for a very pleasant reason because we were going to, we had decided our, our new entertainment machine was going to have a CD drive as, as part of it, that, that it was going to be next generation. The 3DO was the first one out with a, it's, with a built-in CD drive. And, um, and we knew we were going to be going to vendors in China and talking with them about CD drives. And so people would know what we were working on. And so in order to camouflage what we we're working on, we, we gave the, the machine the codenamed Opera. So someone would think we were working on some sort of opera playback device or something like that but it was it was our our real passion we did other work and it was cool contracting work we had some real fun with some of that but uh, we were also you know developing in the back room this uh, the 3do device and uh and raising money for that and we had this money guy who was uh, um, uh, who knew what we were doing and he knew we were trying to raise money to develop this entertainment console and then this same money guy turns around and, and goes and attends 
a, um, a meeting with Trip Hawkins, where Trip is talking about he wants to create a new entertainment device that is not like, you know, the, the kind of nightmare that they have to go through these days. Trip is still at Electronic Arts. And, and he was lamenting that when, uh, when Electronic Arts develops a game for the PC, it doesn't develop a game for the PC, but it has to develop 17 different games at the same time because there's all these different configurations and, you know, and et cetera. And that this is a big pain in the neck. What he was advocating was that we would create a new game system that would be the, you know, the, the one to rule them all, where it would be a standard that anyone could program for. And instead of having, you know, with 17 different configurations, there would be one and it would be the, the best, the leading edge, the best. And it would be he, he envisioned a system like a, um, VHS where anyone could um, uh, create a VCR, anyone could create a VHS player, and uh, anyone could create the VHS content. And the, the people that created the players would make the money off the players and people that created the content would make their money off the content. And this was, you know, the brave new world where we would create a game system, but publish the specs and let anyone create their own version of it and let anyone freely create software for it. It was a brave new world when we started out. None of that worked out to be true. You know, we had to, the, the, the manufacturing costs, the hardware costs were so great that Trip finally decided he had to raise money from the software developers and there had to be a tariff for this charge that that uh, you'd have to pay $3 per copy for um, uh, to get a game to run on the 3DO hardware and that every piece of software sold would have a $3 uh, charge added to it that would be then turned around and given to the hardware manufacturers to try to sweeten their deal for them a little bit to try to make the manufacturing costs more attractive. And, and that wasn't enough. And so partway through, he had to change it to $6 that we were charging software developers to. It was a noble idea. It was a, a you know, a grand idea, but um, finally not practical because it didn't take the actual uh, profit margins into account. And so finally, because of all of that, this baby, wonderful little game system that we had created, after all of those machinations, the device that I, I believe $700 at the time was its retail price, yeah, if I yeah, recall correctly. Whereas, where yeah. you know, you could go and buy a Genesis for, you know, 99 bucks. And was it times seven, the experience of these other game systems? No, it wasn't. It was, it was great. It was, it was very great, but it was just, it was too expensive and the thing was powerful, but it, it never got its traction because they, they could never get the numbers big because it was just, you know, the, you know, only the high end consumers could afford it. They, you couldn't get the big installed base. And because you couldn't get the big installed base, you couldn't get the software. And because you couldn't get the software, you couldn't get the big installed base, you know? And, and so it was, it was, it, it was a, a magnificent effort, but it was again, you know, they lost their minds with the, what they thought they could get the public to do with that. <laughs> it's a crazy time. It was a crazy time. We all knew. We, we all, we all, you know, we 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 argued against it all the time. But you know, when when we did NTG, that company, Dave Needle, Dave Morse, and I owned that company. That was our company. We each owned it one third. And, and as, as we brought other principals on board, we gave them a piece of the action as well. But it was our company. 
when when uh, we got involved with Trip, Trip finally bought our company, and um, we became you know, um, contributors to his company. And now we were one of nine, now one of twelve, now one of fifteen, and and you know, our, our, our the impact we had became instantly diluted, and and it was even worse. It, we we were those the wild-haired inventors that had put the thing together in the first place, but we weren't part of Tripp's cadre of people he had appointed himself to the various positions in this company, and so if there ever was a conflict, it always went to them, you know, they, they, they were the ones that Trip trusted because he had hired him himself. And so Dave and I uh, faded in significance over time. And, and there was the fateful day. So now I'm a fellow at 3DO. Years have gone by. I'm, I'm a VP and fellow. And as fellow, I get to go anywhere I want and do anything I want inside the company. And I did. I'd go and attend grand design sessions. I, you know, I, I, I had a lot of fun and it was very interesting. And I would take, took part in some of the new hardware development and stuff like that. And was friends with everyone across the country, a company. And came the fateful day that a bunch of hardware friends of mine at the company came like one by one asked for a meeting, took me outside for a walk around outside to tell me what had just happened. They couldn't believe it, where they were in a hardware design meeting and and like an unspeakable thing had happened. We pointed out before, it, you, you had said it, and it was so true, that the, one of the greatest strengths that Amiga had was that it was not a bunch of hardware guys inventing a hardware system and over here a bunch of software guys trying to figure out what to do with that hardware, but instead it was a group effort. It was truly a team effort where everyone tried to understand everything. The, 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 the software guys were in the nest with the hardware guys. We'd be developing the operating system at the same time that we'd be developing the graphics hardware at the same time that we'd be figuring out, you know, what to do with uh, with joysticks. And, and it was this, this magnificent group effort that I had never seen before, the, the tightness of it, the, the quality of that, that, the synergy of people designing it together and working together. And so when Needle Morse and I went off and did this again two more times after Amiga, that was our greatest strength is that we worked that way. We were a team. It was everything was was a whole. It wasn't pieces plugged together haphazardly, but the entire thing was designed as a as a as a dynamic whole like that. And came that day at 3DO when these hardware guys come and tell me that the thing they had just heard at this meeting was that. They were had a bunch of hardware people had been sitting around working on the design for the next generation hardware, and they were making a decision that was going to have a profound impact on the entire system. And uh, the people that were sitting in this meeting says, well, we can't decide this here. We got to drag the software guys in because it's going to have a huge implication on the software. And the boss at the meeting said, I don't want to bring the software guys in now because you know, if we bring them in, it's going to be a half year of debate and they're going to complain about this, they're going to complain about that, and it's going to destroy the schedule. No, 
We're not going to bring the software people in. We're just going to make this decision and then they'll have to figure out how to live with it. But we know it's the right thing to do. And so hush up. And three of them came right over to my desk and said, oh, you can't believe what I just heard. (laughs) And sadly for me, that was the day that I decided I was out of 3DO, that I was going to be done with it because I I didn't want to be part of a company where there was that kind of thinking. It was so far away from the thing that we had invented that I just didn't want to be part of it. Well, RJ, I mean, you've worked on some incredible products throughout your career. And I mean, even today, you know, we, we see you at Amiga events all around the world. It must be such a buzz when you get fans who grew up on the Amiga coming over and shaking your hand and thanking you for all the inspiration you give them. God, it's funny you would say that. It's so true. Yes, I love to go to Amiga events. But the reason why I go is to, to be able to meet the people who attend these events. We, we invented the Amiga for those fans that are still using it today. We, it was the, the whole thing for us always was this noble undertaking where we wanted to try to do something good for humanity. We wanted to try to create a machine that, that was powerful and would help people go to the next generation, but was still simple, easy to access, low cost, anyone could afford one. You know, we, we, we had this dream for being able to create that device that would reach everyone. And, and we have, there's so many people that are still using it today and I love meeting them. But for me, the, the most unexpected thing the, the, the greatest gift that I've gotten from all of this is that a lot of people found themselves because of the Amiga computer. They, they discovered that, that they wanted to do uh, graphics or they really wanted to explore audio or, or they wanted to get into programming or, or they, they I, I know one person that got into IT. I know two people that got into sales, computer sales because of the Amiga computer. I know people that got into making podcasts because of the Amiga <laughs> computer. I, I didn't see this coming, but I get, I, I get thank yous all the time. I'm giving myself goosebumps. I get thank yous all the time from people. You know, I, you, you, because of this m- machine that you all made, I, I, I did this or I did that. I found myself. I'm, I'm so happy now. And I just, I, I, and so it's, it's my, one of my secret thrills. I love going to these Amiga conferences because I love meeting the people because I love seeing those smiles on their faces. It's, it's, it's like a dream come true for me. It's, it's, I, I can't imagine feeling more satisfied with my life than I feel with the success that the Amiga has given so many people. Well, RJ, it's been an absolute pleasure to get your stories. And hopefully, you know, when all this is over, we can meet up in Amsterdam or somewhere wonderful like that and have a couple of beers and reminisce some more. Thank you so much for coming on this week. It's a pleasure. Let's do this again sometime soon. Absolutely. And I'll put a link to your Monday morning tickler emails. Everyone needs to check those out as well. Yeah, please add if, uh, in, uh, you know, the, if there's any text associated with this. People ping me at rj at michael.org. I happily will add you to my weekly puzzle list. Fantastic. Oh, they're tough puzzles as well. (laughs) Yeah, but keep me thinking a few days. (laughs) RJ, thank you so much. Quite a treat. Thank you for this opportunity. 